1: what would I do if I, God forbid, a thousand times only had six months to live? And I realized, well, I wouldn't be working this job and that's for sure. And so then I thought, well, if I wouldn't do this in my last six months of life, why am I doing it at all? Because none of us knows how much time we have. I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. So if it's not right for me, if I, only ha- if I knew I only had a limited time, most of us don't know how much time we have, why am I wasting even a day here?
0: Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place. One parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is From Yoga to True Crime with Sarah (laughs) Develo. Sarah is a true crime writer and author of her new thriller, Broadway Butterfly. She's also the creator and host of Mystery and Thriller Mavens, a popular author series and interactive Facebook group. For her weekly mystery and thriller Mavens live event, she's interviewed more than 300 authors ranging from best-selling and world-renowned to the buzziest debuts. While creative and active on her own social media platforms, Sarah also serves as a director of social media strategy for the International Thriller Writers Association. She has appeared on CBS, ABC, and CNBC, as well as in The New York, as well as written in the New York Times, Forbes, the San Francisco Chronicle, and more. She's been published on Marie Claire, Elle, Red Book, Cosmopolitan, and Women's Day, among many, many others. Her memoir, which is also amazing, Where in the Om Am I? One Woman's Journey from Corporate World to the Yoga Mat was an Amazon number one bestseller. Most importantly, in her spare time, Sarah loves to teach yoga, cook, and eat, garden, (laughs) go for leisurely walks with her husband and their beloved rescue mutt, Paluda. She's passionate about all things books, especially mysteries and thrillers, the craft of writing, and connecting readers to their favorite authors, as well as introducing them to their new discoveries. Sarah, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Dan. I'm so excited to be here.
0: We have a lot to talk about because there's this journey from corporate America to yoga instructor and yogi to a mystery murder thriller writer. And so, um, and I've just been a deep dive in your book. So first of all, I just, I want to start with saying um, Broadway Butterfly, I, I was captivated I am captivated, and I have so many questions about that. And then I dove in. I went backwards. I went from the recent to the past, and then I went back to your your memoir, which is absolutely awesome and honest and real. So I guess we're going to cover all that. Um, To start, your experience of corporate America and the way you describe it. I was imagining it's uh, it was a TV show. Like it's an unfortunate <laughs> it's unfortunately like a reality TV show. Like all of the like the negative aspects you hear about in corporate America, you experience that. So like you're you're nodding your head. So tell us a little bit about like that and that was a like over a decade I believe part of your life. Yes.
1: Yeah, so I went, so I worked my way through college in the university's um, public relations office, so doing PR and marketing. And then when I graduated with my degree in communications and all that work experience, having worked my way through, I went right into the field. So you know, PR and marketing is like any trade skill. So if you know, if you're a carpenter, you can build a doghouse or you can build a skyscraper because you know how to build things. And when you do PR and marketing, you can market. You know, do PR and marketing for a university or financial services or for you know a beauty company. It's it's the same. It's, it's the same machinations to get the word out to the people they're trying to reach. So when I graduated in 1999. You know the the economy was booming. Everything was up. Everything was doing great. And financial services. I moved from Philadelphia to Boston, and which is which was the fifth largest financial center in the world. And financial services was the industry that was hiring. So I happened to put my trade skills to work in that field. And uh, little did I know <laughs> that I would blink, and a decade of my life would go by in that world that I had never intended to be in, but found myself in because I, you know, in spite of having worked my way through, I came out, I still had student loans and then eventually car payments and mortgages and all those real world responsibilities Mm -hmm. that, that weigh us down. And so the financial services happened to be the industry that was hiring in the city that I moved to. And so I took a job without any intention or forethought because, you know, Develo had bills to pay and, and, and I had skills that could be used in any industry. Now I knew at approximately nine oh five a.m. on day one that this was not for me. <laughs> like I walked in and I was pretty like, oh, early no. on.
0: Pretty early on. Okay.
1: <laughs> exactly. And although I felt kind of cool, you know, like Melanie Griffith for those old, old uh, those of us old enough to remember, Working Girl, yep. or you know Jennifer Gardner in Thirteen Going on Thirty for those of us who are slightly younger, you know, I was like, oh, look at me, I'm corporate Barbie, <laughs> you know, and yep. I like to wear my, you know, I like to dress up in the role. And carry my briefcase, and I felt very official and very cool walking into the skyscraper and having the ID to go through, you know, security and go up fifty stories to you know the the, the fancy office and the fancy building. It, I knew I didn't belong there, but I stayed and I worked there anyway because, again, I had bills to pay and student loans to repay. And then, honestly, I got sucked into the hustle and mm-hmm. you know the the addictive. The addictive hustle of okay, now I've got a press conference to plan. Ooh, I did that, but now I've got another one to plan. And then you know the deadline-driven world. And then oh, I got you know I'm up for promotion. Promotion. Well, I'd like to get that. Ooh, now I'm up for an office, and I get to move out of a cubicle. Well, now I'm up for a bigger office, and it's always you know something more that you can go for. And I blinked, and ten years of my life had gone by. And that's the thing is that busy sucks you in Mm -hmm. and distracts you. And if you are not taking the time. And you don't have the tools from going to therapy, which I am a huge fan of and have benefited so richly from, or a yoga practice, or the practice of looking inward, the tools to look inward and and say, am I doing what I am meant to do? Or am I doing what is familiar, convenient, Mm -hmm. expected? By me, yeah. or by some parental voice that may or may not be actually a prevent, pre- parental voice, you know, or lucrative, you know, am I doing the work I am called to do, what is authentic and real and feels fulfilling to me, or am I just sucked into busy and doing what is familiar, convenient, easy, and lucrative? And for a long time, I was doing just what felt expected and then what was easy and what what felt safe because it was familiar and it felt too scary to leave that and start over and you know have no network or no money you know or all of those things that we take safety and comfort and and you know and actually get help us get through the day so mm-hmm. that is how I got sucked in, and that is why I stayed for ten years
0: and okay and about what seven years in ish is when yes. you also like I need something different, and you took this bold move to take a very rigorous uh yoga training class <laughs> right? so, so you so you you had an awareness of yes. okay, this isn't all that there is. And there's, there's gotta be more. Like, so what was that? Yeah. Like, what was that pool to, to yoga in this journey?
1: So three factors combined to sort of help me get the courage to, to first take that yoga training, which then gave me the tools and, and the certification to then eventually quit my job and, and leave my work. My corporate career. And those three factors were number one, I happened to work under a parade of what I can only describe as stupendously bad female bosses and you mm-hmm. are <laughs> yes. you are reading the book so you know Oh we're my gosh
0: yes vomiting Vicky, Vicky Vicky vomiting Vicky oh my gosh <laughs> okay yeah we're
1: talking yes. vomiting Vicky we're yeah. talking you know and she is only one in a in a right. parade of bad female bosses which is really weird because at the time and I think still to this day financial services is super male dominated and so mm-hmm. I would be in a room with 90 men and then it would be me and maybe one other woman. And that woman would usually be my boss because marketing and PR was the one little, you know, corner where women actually did have a chance of having, you know, a higher level position. Whereas in sales or the rest of the company, you know, and certainly in the C-level suite, there was no women to be found. And so I, you know, was would be waving like, hey sister, you know we're yeah. gonna we're gonna yeah. you know you could be my mentor and I'll be your faithful you know do good doobie. and she was more like, hey, you know I'm gonna kill yeah. you and stab yeah. you and, and yes. step over you, you <laughs> are a
0: threat to me.
1: Yes, and yeah. I think that that threat comes from a sense of scarcity. So for me it was like, hey, it's only me and you, let's do this right. together. But yeah. for her it was, hey, there's me and you, but there's only one seat at the table, so if it's me or you, it's going to be me. Right. And that sense of scarcity creates some really competitive, really ugly behavior, and I think that is the underlying yeah. root cause of
0: it. Let me, let me just uh, jump in and say that there was previous uh, lit research that found that women bosses treated their female employees more poorly than male bosses treated their female employees
1: and that in my lived first of all i didn't know that yeah. and in my yeah. lived experience i am here to testify that that is 100 percent true and wow. so counterintuitive because for right. me i was like you know again i'm th- i'm looking around the room and there's 90 dudes there's two of us and so i feel solidarity with her yeah. but she doesn't and it and and so i actually was treated much better way better by the men in in the company mm. than I was by any of my female bosses who were extremely backstabbing and undercutting and – you know, just really brutal. So that mm-hmm. was the, that was the first factor. Okay. It was a stupendous parade, you know, parade of stupendously bad female bosses. The second factor that was that, you know, as I stared down the barrel of 30, which my God, I wish I was staring down again. <laughs> now I'm <laughs> looking at 50, yeah. but, um, you know, is that I had this realization that, oh my God, a decade of my life has gone by without me doing what feels authentic and real and fulfilling to me. And if I'm not careful and if I don't make a bold choice, it's going to be another decade and then another decade. And I, you could really lose a whole life like that. That was the second factor was this wake up call of, oh my God, it just decade went by like a second. The third factor was that my mother was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer and given six months to live. Mm. And I, it was such a wake up call because I started start. No one in our family had ever had cancer. It was so shocking to my system that someone could have only six months to live. And I, and so my mother had to ask herself, what do I want to do with this very short window of time? You know, do I want to travel? Do I want to stay at home? We had a fa- you know family reunion for her, so she could see everyone. And so I started thinking what would I do if I, God forbid, a thousand times, only had Mm -hmm. six months to live? And I realized, well, I wouldn't be working this job and that's for sure. And so then I thought, well, if Mm. I wouldn't do this in my last six months of life, why am I doing it at all? Because none of us knows how much time we have. I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. So- Mm -hmm. If it's not right for me, if I only have, if I knew I only had a limited time, most of us don't know how much time we have. Why am I wasting even a day here? And that, um, mm. you know, was this crystallizing moment. It all kind of happened in, you know, around the same time as mm-hmm. each other. And I stayed because I was scared and because I took comfort in financial safety. I stayed for four more years, but it planted that seed of awareness that eventually gave me the courage to leave.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. You start your book with the definition of authenticity. Yes. True to one's own personality, spirit, or character. Yes, for the uh, Merriam-Webster dictionary, and right, and that is so. You had this, you had these experiences that led you to start looking within, yes. while still playing the game, working hard, um, being mistreated, um, particularly by the female um, authorities, as you write about <laughs> them in your memoir, Medusa. The other one, um, and and. I ro- okay, and you're also at the same time going through this rigorous yogi training mm-hmm. with a what's seemingly a very powerful um, yogi instructor. Mm-hmm. And then you're experiencing with your women yogi training sisters <laughs> like the same brutal <laughs> dynamics in this supposed to be namaste place.
1: Yes. So I thought because I had enjoyed the benefits of going to a yoga class after a tough day at work and you know and sweating it out and zenning it out and then oming it out and then you know you f- you go in a big stress ball and then an hour or 75 minutes or 90 minutes later you float out on this cloud of zen and you're thinking oh this is so you know l- great and i love yoga you know this is just my my savior and my comfort and so i thought well if i'm getting this level of 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 release and of relaxation from doing yoga imagine if i was teaching yoga and i wanted to immerse myself in it more because I it really was helping me to survive. That was that was what was helping me to survive my job and the bad bosses and my mother's diagnosis and all of this madness. So I thought I really want to learn more about this, and I actually had looked at a, a lot of different ways to you know immerse myself in that. So I had looked at well, what would it be like if I went back and did you know a master's in Hindu philosophy? What if I just learned about the philosophy end of it, you know, or and or what if I did a PhD in it? But I'm like, well, what am I, what the heck am I going to do with a, <laughs> a PhD in Hindu philosophy? I'm not going to go become a professor. Also, that would be six years and more student loan debts that I then right. have to pay off <laughs> working right. this job. So I thought, you know, I'll do the, I'll do a yoga teacher training. I'll learn more about the philosophy and the physical practice. And that'll be a really great way to, you know, zen out. And I'll go, you know, every weekend, once a month. And, you know, and then I'll just relax all weekend at the training. And then I'll go back to my yoga. T- to my job fresh from yoga teacher training feeling relaxed and centered from a lovely weekend of zenning out little did i know dr dan twas not to be <laughs> no <laughs> because it was just rigorous <laughs> it was so rigorous and a full you know 10 day immersion into anatomy with an anatomy teacher learning every muscle every bone every sinew of the body and then you know learning hindu philosophy with a Hindu philo- a professor of Hindu philosophy learning sanskrit which is an incredibly complex language both the alphabet so that we could read it the you know the words every meaning because hin- because sanskrit is the only language in the world that is consciously created like it didn't emerge from caveman grunts mm-hmm. the 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 indians sat down and said let's create a, a language for the gods so every syllable has meaning every word has meaning and so you have to really learn and appreciate the meanings and the intention behind every syllable behind every letter so it was extremely intense um learning and then it was made extra intense by the kaleidoscope of interesting personalities which i'm sure you would have a delight diagnosing i mean let's get you in there let's get you in there
0: (laughs) yes the characteristics (laughs) of oh my gosh so um like Brinley's character, you know, not her real name, uh, but like, oh my gosh, when, like there's always seeming in all of my intensive trainings and workshops, there is that character type. And then some of the others um, who are also supposed <laughs> to be mental health professionals and these evolved <laughs> artist creative types themselves were just like, Oh, my gosh, just backstabbing and mean and righteous and, oh, my gosh. and fake. Yeah, fake. Yeah, (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah. It turns out
1: the yogis are just as bitchy, backstabbing, and cutthroat as the corporates, but the difference is they cloak it in behind this veil of pretending to be yogic, whereas you know you're going to get cut in the corporate world, but in the yoga world, it hurts it it was unexpected yeah. because I right. thought I was hanging out with a bunch of Zen, you know,
0: right. cool people. <laughs> right. Well, and <laughs> through this process. So again, this is a whole process of being authentic and it's like the, the veils being pulled back, not only of yourself, but in so many things like this world, which you thought was a certain thing. And then it's like, people are just people regardless yeah. of what they do. And I, I wrote down this, um, great awareness that you um, consolidated from one of the teachings during this time when people were being very challenging both at work and at, um, in your class, in your training, that you said this is actually a blueprint for navigating life in relationships. Mm. and relationships. That, and that is understand the other person's pain or reason or story, but don't indulge it. it. Mm. Order- Honor the experiences of others, but don't get caught up in them. Always allow yourself to believe that their story can change. Yes. Yes. You are and challenged to do that.
1: <laughs> and it is a challenge yes. because it's hard not to get sucked in.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And
1: it's hard not to get hurt. But that is the blueprint that I would ideally stick that I try to ideally stick to.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you, so, okay. What's also great about the story is the way that you finally left the corporate world was completely uh, almost like, orchestrated by the corporate world and all mm. the BS with it. And so the thing that you want to run away from the most finally makes it that you have to leave. Like the universe gave you, I'm sure in hindsight, a gift. That didn't seem like a gift at the time. And I love the um, your announcement, your wonderfully supportive husband who pumped you up to Ooh. go into HR and... And basically, you're like, you know what? Someone can only eat so much shit, and I'm done eating shit. I quit.
1: (laughs) That is what I said. (laughs) That is what I said. And the the look on the HR person's face, on the HR woman's face, that when I said that, will live forever, rent-free in my brain, because she was so shocked that someone would say it. And that someone would leave is was made it all worthwhile because mm-hmm. that moment of standing up for myself pumped up, as you said, by my wonderfully supportive husband, because I was shaking in my boots, mm-hmm. uh, my high heels <laughs> at the time, um felt so vindicating and so empowering that I actually don't have to eat shit anymore. I can mm-hmm. walk away,
0: yeah. Because yeah.
1: I think so many of us, what's really interesting to me is that the corporate world or a, a, any job, actually, any job, the human interactions and, um, court and and structure end up taking very family-like dimensions over. So if we overlay a family's footprint over a work footprint, they often take on very they look very similarly like if we took you know one of those sl- see-through slides and layered them on top of each other i think that the 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 dna <laughs> of them would be very similar because there's always someone who does the most work in a family or a- in a workplace there's always a slacker there's always someone who is a little you know a little backstabbing there's always someone who's really earnest and And the dysfunction of people living in a, you know, interacting with their family members or interacting with their coworkers when they haven't gone to therapy and, and started to analyze and take responsibility for the own, for their own stuff that they bring into the family or workplace dynamics ends up playing out in potentially really toxic ways. Mm -hmm. And I see it, you know, my husband still works in the corporate world and I see it at his job all the time. You know, he'll... And he'll come home and, and talk about, you know, what's going on. And I'm like, I wish that person would go to therapy <laughs> like, because <laughs> yeah. they're taking their shit out on everybody at work. Right. And you see the right. same stuff in, in a family. And yeah. it, it's really interesting. And also, you know, bosses almost take on parental like roles, right? Because that person's controlling your money, that yeah. person's controlling your power because Because their ability to control your money controls your power, right? If you don't have enough money, it's like they're giving you your allowance in a very parental way. And it's just, it's really fascinating if you start to look
0: at it. And then you emancipate yourself, you're free. And then it's like, oh, whoa, (laughs) now, um... I will say, as someone who recognizes the personality traits as a uh, uh, perfectionist in recovery, I could say, you you know, like, because as you said, like, checkbox, 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 you know, ladder, ladder, ladder. And now that's all gone. You're just, you're waking up whenever you want, even though you still wake up the same time. You could wake (laughs) up whenever you want. And you're like, "What, what am I, what the hell am I supposed to do now? And talk a little about the courage it took to put yourself out there without structure, without mm. all of that experience that you now had racked up as a you know a seasoned PR director, now you're a brand new yogi instructor, or trying to be, or maybe gonna be. That's that's a lot.
1: Starting over is hard, and that's why people stay in toxic relationships, whether mm-hmm. it is a personal relationship, a love relationship, a friendship, or a work a work relationship. You know, that's why people stay in jobs and relationships that are toxic and hurtful because it is easier to stay with the devil you know than it is to mm-hmm. leave and start over. Starting over is so scary yeah. and hard because as humans we crave the familiar and and fear the unknown and It was very hard. And also as Americans, you know, it's really interesting because we live in such a work uh, obsessed culture. You know, the first thing, if you meet an American, another American, the first thing they'll say is, oh, what's your name? And what do you do? As though what you do is who you are. Whereas if you are living outside the US, which I've had the privilege to do, both I've lived in Australia and I've lived in London, you might talk to someone for, for many hours before they say, what do you do for work? And yeah, right, right. Because they are honoring subconsciously, they're not aware that that's different here, but they're honoring that what you do for work is not what you do, period. Right. And they're honoring that's, that that's a facet of your life, not the entirety of your identity. And so the reason it's so hard for us as Americans to start over even harder than anyone else, which is always hard and scary again, because it's unknown is because work is such an important, a huge consuming part of our identities and our lives in this, in this country and this culture. And so to leave the safety and the comfort of, of, you know, of the title of, you know, head of PR comma at this big, important company comma with an office comma and a, big fat six figure salary exclamation point is hard and then to mm-hmm. go back to the starting line when you're really far down that career path and say i'm i'm starting over and i'm looking yeah. for an unpaid internship you know or an unpaid mm-hmm. position it's it is humbling and it is it's it is hard it is hard to start over and it is scary to start over Um, You know, for all of these reasons—identity, financial security, and the—you know—the—the ego, the hubris of saying, "I'm Sarah Develo, comma, you know, head of PR at this, you know, multi-million or multi-billion-dollar company."
0: Mm -hmm. And that's
1: why it—that is why it's scary. And 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 it—I'm here to say it is indeed that freaking scary.
0: And you had this awareness that you wrote about at the end of the book, which is really, I want, to say, I want you to know, even all these years later, um, it, 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 it was um, very calming and soothing for, for me to hear this uh, awareness that I want to share with all of our listeners. And that is, abruptly, it dawns on me that life, or at least huge chunks of it, lies in those in-between parts And in the transformative process we experience where we try to get to wherever we are going. Yes. Yeah, right? That it's, we're often striving, striving, striving for that next. And life exists in the process, not in the outcome. And even the most frustrating, uncertain aspects of the transition of the process, which mostly it is like so much of life is that it's how do we just realize that is life and to try to settle into it.
1: Oh my God. Yes. 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 To all of that. Oh, so beautifully, poignantly and perfectly said that is life. And how do we settle into it? Because it's so easy to get sucked into so perfectly said the striving toward the next goal and mm-hmm. then we get to that goal and we don't even enjoy it because we're already saying well now I want a bigger office or now I want a bigger raise or now I want a bigger home or you know the next thing and you can literally lose an entire life like that and so I try right. now and I'm still guilty of this but I really try now to use the tools of yoga and of therapy of being Present. And that is hard because, again, it's easy to get sucked into the busyness, but of grounding my feet to the floor, putting my one hand on my heart, one hand mm-hmm. on my belly, taking three deep breaths, and just in the words of Krishna Das, being here now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's
1: not, you know, like this latest book, Broadway Butterfly, took me nine years of my life to write.
0: Nine and years.
1: Nine years, I, you know, I started that book when I was in my mid thirties. I'm in my mid forties now. I'm turning forty six on Sunday, and it would be really easy just to stay focused on, you know, the book launch. I had my book launch last night. It was the greatest day of my life. It was better than my wedding. It was just so wonderful. But at the end of the day, that was one day,
0: right? And right.
1: it would be really if I had not tried to really be present and enjoy the research and the writing and even the editing, which is my nemesis, I could very easily just not be present in that, pra- in that in the practice of that, the work of that, because I would be, only be thinking about the day of the launch, the day of the launch, the day of the launch, you know? Right. And it's about... Slowing down and grounding yourself, and taking a deep breath, and enjoying that walk with your dog. Or, you know, I'm such a dog person, I'm such an animal person, but especially a dog person. You know, burrowing my face in her beautiful tiny neck and breathing in the sweet scent of her, and you know, and listening to her little her little grunties (laughs) or her little stomach gurgles, and just smelling her and touching her and feeling her and loving her and just saying, you know what, this moment is perfect because I'm with her mm. and applying yeah. that same joy and that same, even when it's hard, that same presence right. of, of being in the practice, you know, of saying today I'm working on this page today. I'm going to this library and what a joy to be in this library, you mm-hmm. know, to t- what a beautiful meal, what a what a beautiful blue sky or hey it's raining but I love that too. You know, it's about being present because if you're not present you're going to miss it.
0: Mhm. I um that actually reminds me of maybe you were in my head last night. So I uh, occasionally um you know don't sleep well and then when I don't sleep well my mind starts going and I have to work very hard to sort of put kind of put my mind aside and ground myself. Mm. And actually last night as it was happening, again, I, I, you, I, you just must have been, your, your words must have been in my head because I remember saying, this is uncomfortable mm. and I am just going to sit with the uncomfortableness of it and see what happens.
1: Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. So first of all, I'm glad I was in your head. That's a very good head to be in. I'll yeah. happily be in Dr. Dan's head. I'll transport myself over there anytime I would thank like you. to be in this particular head. Um, and I also – and thank you for sharing that you you know, sometimes struggle with sleep. I find that incredibly comforting to know that I'm not the only one because if if Dr. Dan <laughs> struggles with sleep, it makes it a little more okay that I do as well. And as someone, you know, I'm very open about the fact that I struggle with anxiety. I always have, um, and I, you know, that's that also results in anxiety-driven insomnia, yep. and it's very easy to catastrophize that, you know, well, now I'm only going to get seven hours of sleep. Well, now I'm only going to get four hours of sleep. Now I'm only going to get two and a half hours of sleep and I'm going to feel like crap. And then I'm going to have trouble concentrating and then I'm not going to, and then I'm not going to feel good and I won't be my best. And then that interview, and then you could really, if you have anxiety, start to spiral up into, and now, you know, and I hate not sleeping and this sucks and you could really start to spiral up or at least I
0: could, (laughs) but I'm with you. I'm with you.
1: Yeah. It's, I have realized that, you know, people, and again, especially Western people, not just Americans, but Western culture is very focused on escaping discomfort. So – we have, you know, a medicine for everything. Oh, you have a headache, take a Tylenol. You have this, take that. Oh, you you know, you, it's, it's all about escaping that. And I just want to say, I mean, I take, <laughs> I take, I take Tylenol, I take Advil, whatever, you know, I want to, there's no need to be in pain. Right. But I also want to look at the fact that that is a very Western construct. So for instance, I learned in my yoga teacher training that, in Eastern philosophy, in Hindu philosophy, it's very different. So their their belief system is suffering is inevitable. Mm -hmm. We're all going to suffer. The choice that you have is how long you you choose to prolong that suffering by A, anticipatory dread, Mm -hmm. and B, post-suffering, reliving of the suffering. So if you have – let's say 5 inches of suffering or 5 days of suffering it's your that's inherent accept it don't you're not you're not escaping it there's no tylenol for you your choice is if you spend another 5 days anticipating how much that's going to suck mm-hmm. and then another 5 days afterward reliving how very much it sucked and right. that different very different thinking about the prolonging of one's suffering and the accepting of some level of inherent suffering was a big mind shift for me. Mm -hmm. So if we go back to your insomnia moment, your in your your insomnia and that that, and whatever suffering mental or physical that that was going to incur for you would be unavoidable. That is what it is. (laughs) And that's Mm -hmm. a very Hindu thing to say. Your right. choice, your only yeah. ability to control that is how much you prolong it on either side. And as you said, you chose not to. You chose mm-hmm. to stop the spiral and just say, I'm going yes. to breathe through this. And yeah. so you yes. shrunk your suffering back to the whatever bare minimum was inherent in that experience. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to do on my best days.
0: <laughs> like, Beautiful. Beautiful. And I, I just want to throw this in there because um, you triggered uh, some a few things based on your love of your dog and also the, the suffering. Um, we not that long ago had a very sudden and traumatic uh, pet loss. Oh. And um, in a way that we couldn't even anticipate things going down or anticipate how hard it was because of how it all went down Mm. and it was about a week that my wife and I we we were we were not ourselves Mm. and what I and people would ask are you okay people who knew and people who didn't know and I just maybe just being older not fighting it it was like actually I'm just not feeling like myself we've had a hard situation Mm. and it really was about this this was it, you like what you triggered this because it was it was about five to six days of really feeling not good. Like it was mm. there was suffering. And then there was about five days of that distance and reflection mm. as we started to come back to ourselves and then try to, you know, incorporate the traumatic experience and um the loss. And then, you know then you move on and life goes on. But I, I've i had plenty of times in my life where you're just resisting. I'm resisting the yes. suffering, right? As opposed yes. to just allow it and accept it as a part of life, particularly when certain events happen.
1: Exactly. And I think, well, first of all, I just want to say I am so very sorry for your loss. And my heart breaks with and for you to think of how painful that is. And it is the day I dread most with my own little payload. And I try not to think about it too much. But it is is something I think about almost every day. And it 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 preemptorily breaks my heart. But then I think, oh, I'm prolonging my suffering. So try just try (laughs) to be present in this. But I just want to say I'm so, so sorry. And I think the what you said about resistance is so perfect and on point because it's about the um, that resistance is prolonging it,
0: yeah. um,
1: and it's hard not to resist it because, of course, if something is so painful, we want we don't want to go through it. Nobody wants no. to suffer. Nobody wants to hurt and be heartbroken. But that resistance is ultimately only prolonging it, and you know, and I, and that's yeah. the really hard stuff.
0: Yes. Well, thank you for your thoughts. I, I hesitated to even tell the story because knowing how you feel about your animals, I was like, I don't want to put that on you. But I felt it was important, and uh, so thank you. I I want to. We need to. Sh- we need to transition. To this, this next phase of from now, you know, from, from Yogi teacher to mystery, crime, murder, researcher, and writer. (laughs) So, so please share how that happened.
1: Yeah so I, it's interesting right because i think a lot of people think yoga teacher to re, you know murder you know, ma- maven of all things murder and mayhem what what the heck happened talk about talk about a 180 but what i think is really interesting is that we're all multifaceted beings right you're not just this podcast host you are not just a husband you are not None of us are any just one thing. We are all many things, and I always try to think of it as a diamond, a multifaceted diamond because diamonds have many facets. So, what are the many facets of your of your life, of of the entirety and complexity and wholeness of your humanity? That's a question I would love everyone to take a moment and explore, you know, just write Free write for a few minutes. What are all the all of my interests? What are the what is the entirety of, of 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 me? And you can start to really explore who you are and start to focus in on some of the other sources of joy and interests for yourself. And it doesn't have to be a big exercise. It can be you know a minute or three minutes, and that is something that I do. You know, and so. As a yogi, I recognize that there is always another, you know. Actually, I want to say that again, Dr. Jan. Um, As a writer, I recognize that there is always a next chapter. And your life and your book of life has many chapters. Mm -hmm. And those chapters may seem very different and very cognitively dissonant because you like murder, but you're Zen. <laughs> like, what? And the answer is yes. I like murder and mayhem, and I am also very Zen. Um, I love yoga and meditating every day. <laughs> and that are those are two of some of my many facets. And the tools of yoga gave me the mental and energetic ability to look at... The entirety of my humanity and 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 accept all of these many facets about myself
0: you are um well, you know you're speaking to our audience because we have several murderino listeners out there who are big <laughs> fans of my favorite murder podcast and exactly right media, so you are you are speaking the language of our people, um, yes and about the multifacets of you can be this and be that and yes and that it's authentic. To be, for many, to be fascinated with humans and how humans can do certain things, and the lives of the victims, and and finding justice. Right, this is a big, yes. a big push. I know for many of the people who are in this space is to tell the story of the victims um, on the road to hopefully seeking justice or, and or to um, for some closure for families which, oh my gosh, I know your mind is, everyone, like, we're resonating right now, and, and, then, and then your book, oh my gosh, and uh, you're gonna have to leave, I don't, there's no spoilers, I'm not doing any spoilers, but it's like, <laughs> the, the road to the discovery of this murder a hundred years ago mm. with a socio-political climate which is not very different than now. <laughs> in many, yes. many ways. Yes.
1: Yes, exactly. Oh my god. Yes, I'm resonating with everything that you're saying and yes to all of that. I am a, you know, I I am a person who likes closure, who likes clarity, and who cares very deeply about justice and what is fair. And I think that the reason so many of us are fascinated by true crime is because we are fascinated by how freaking crazy people can really be and how really crazy real life can be. And, you know, I am hashtag team Twain. I think Mark Twain was right. I think truth is stranger than fiction. And I freaking love Mm. that Mm -hmm. because – You know, the burden on a fiction writer is to make an imaginary world believable. This person I just made up, let me make them feel real to you. But as a nonfiction writer, I can lean into the ludicrous and I love that. So these people who are so wild and crazy and fascinating and true people, I can portray them in the full-bodiedness and the fascinating nature of who they really are. Because when someone says, oh, that would never happen, I can say, Oh, But it did. And I love that. And I wanted to explore this crime because Dot King was murdered and Mm -hmm. someone literally got away with murder. That person, that murderer got to walk around among the rest of us as as though he was a normal person and not a murderer. He got away with murder. And it's not fair. And she was wronged three times in my mind. She was murdered. Her life was cut short by that, Mm -hmm. by someone taking her life. Number two, she was wronged by a system where corruption was rampant and political power, you know, curtailed the investigation. And she, you know, was then victimized by the system. And number three, she was denied truth and light and justice. And so, my goal 100 years later, the 100 year anniversary of the crime, is to Mm -hmm. bring this to light so that in some small way she who was so wronged in so many ways can have her day and, and and have the have the dignity of truth and light and justice be brought to her even if it's just revealing her murderer so that he doesn't get away with it anymore
0: and you did you did exactly that i okay, um i i li- i I just kept reading and reading and reading and reading. And um, then of course the characters become part of one's daily life. And I'm thinking like, what, what's, what's inspector Coughlin doing and what's in, (laughs) and and what's Julia gonna, what's, you know, this strong woman reporter again, ahead of her time in a field of men. Right. What is she going to do? And is she going to stop? Like, this is getting really dangerous. And, Man, and as you said, these are all real people. Yes. Uh, so I ha- so I have a few like a few behind the scenes questions for you. One is, when you did so 9 years of research, 1500 mm. documents, h- hundreds of interviews, you know, what what percent becomes fact? And then how you fill in the pieces of the personalities and the Mm. dialogue. You know, is that that even a fair question about how you put that all together?
1: That's a very fair question. So nine years, and I think it was even 1,700-plus pieces of original research later. I, I, I could give you an exact number, but I'd have to go back and recount. I wanted everything in this book to be factually true because these are real people. And because someone did get away with murder, I felt that in order to honor these real life people, I had to adhere to the truth. Mm -hmm. And I did that. However, Nine years in, I can tell you that some things can't be gotten, even for an anxious OCD riddled person like me, <laughs> who's determined to get to yeah. the truth. Some things can't. So, yes. interrogation scenes behind closed doors of Detective John D. Coughlin interrogating the suspects—I right. um, could not get those. I could not get all of those. I could get some of those because what's really interesting is that reporters had a lot. Closer relationship with police than they do now. So reporters had a a press room in the police station, and actually, just sometimes desks in the actual. You know, mm. r- police room where some reporters could, you know, later complained in the Pinkerton report in 1928, I believe it was, that they could hear the screams of suspects who were be- given the so called third degree, which is to be tortured to get mm-hmm. information out of them. But they couldn't say anything about it because if they were to report the screams of the suspects that they heard being subjected to torture, um, they would be removed. They wouldn't. They their desk would be moved out into the hall, or they would not be allowed in the police station. They wouldn't have access to sources. They then couldn't tell their stories, meet their deadlines, and have a job and an income. So nobody said anything for fear of retribution and retaliation. Um, but they did have. They often were allowed into the interrogation rooms, and they would then report on it, but in a <laughs> in a yeah. non you know con- totally condemning way. So a lot of that information in terms of the interrogations I got from the actual reporting because those reporters had access to that. So a lot of the dialogue, a lot of the information about the interrogations, how many interrogations, how long, how many hours they went on for with no breaks and no water and no bathroom um, were reported in the, in the newspapers. They, they didn't specifically say they did not allow the suspect out to go to the bathroom, but they would say that, you know, the, the, the the suspect was interrogated for this many hours was subjected to, you know, they would say something like, you know, unrelenting interrogation for so many hours. So you know what they're saying without really saying it. Uh, the dialogue, I got a lot of direct pull quotes from those newspapers. Now the emotional so I took everything I could from the reporting, from the memoirs that were written by the head of the homicide division, the the secretary to the police commissioner, um, you know, anything that I could everything that I could get it, directly I put in there. Now the things that I couldn't get, I had to fill in. So if there was one line of dialogue, but then you know that the suspect responded with something, but their response was not included, I might have to fill that in. Mm -hmm. But I read those articles, then I dictated them aloud into a recording device so that it would be, um, you know, typing it for me so that I could memorize and really embed in my brain the rhythm of every single character's speech, their mm. accent, their word choice, the rhythm and patter of how they spoke so that when I had to recreate that dialogue, it was so deeply embedded in me that yeah. I could formulate it pretty realistically.
0: So you basically also have to become a, um, an actor, like a t- an actor for each of the characters, like embody yes. each of those characters to get in their mind while you're playing out this, this drama.
1: Oh my God. That's a really good way of thinking of it. And I hadn't actually thought of it that way. So thank you for, for, for that framing it that way. I hadn't, I love that. And yes, because my goal was I had read Somewhere, and I can't remember where now. That if that if you're writing multiple points of view, and I told the story through four points of view: the detective who invest, who was the head of the investigation, yep. the lead reporter who crime reporter who reported on it, the best, the closest friend, confidant, and keeper of the secrets of the victim, and a, a society woman who's in Palm Beach who's working very hard to get the um, presidential incumbent reelected. Um, I wanted you to be able to cover the name of the person who was narrating that chapter and know who it was through how they spoke and how they yeah, saw the world. Yeah, and in yeah. order to do that, I had to get in their skin and their mind and their words and be able to 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 beam that out to the reader.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I I loved the rhythm because, you know, at first when you start reading the book – you're always trying to, you know, for me, I'm always trying to figure out, okay, who's talking? What, what, where are we? What place and time is this? And then very quickly Mm. you could, I could see the rhythm. And then I was just, okay, this person's talking. And now next chapter, I'm guessing it's going to be one of these people talking. And then you start Mm. to like, you're there, you're like, you're in it. um, And then, like I said, the characters become, you know temporarily part of your life and mm-hmm. um did you have a favorite did you have a favorite perspective of the four
1: I I do I Julia is my favorite I yeah, love I, them I, thought all. Gonna, I thought you were
0: going to I thought you were going to say that yes
1: I love them all but Julia is my favorite I love her yeah. the most
0: Mhm yeah um well she was an amazing, powerful, courageous, uh, crime reporter. And, um, you, uh, she'd be very proud to say that you told her story and you are also venturing, um, a bit on that path as well. Uh, Thank you. hopefully and in a I safe, think... uh, hopefully in a much safer space.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yes. yes. Because it all this book also made me, I wanted to bring Julia to light as well, because this is one of the six pioneering women of journalism at the turn of the century. And her story has been completely forgotten by time and covered by time's dust. And that's not fair. And I wanted to reveal her truth and her story to the world, because this is an incredible woman, a powerful woman, and her story deserves to to be known by the world. She should be taught in classrooms and history of journalism classes. And the world deserves to know who she is and how she blazed this trail for so many women who came before her. I mean, any woman who is working in journalism today can thank her and these other pioneer women for from for hacking that trail through the wilderness for them, and yeah. nobody knows who she is, and so I wanted to also bring that to light, and 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 I feel like that is justice for her, and also it made me think because she was willing to literally risk her life put herself in harm's way. Mm-hmm. I mean, she shared in a 1932 book, which was written by another pioneering woman of journalism, whose name was Ishbel Ross. And she had the forethought to say, I think I better get some of these stories down firsthand of these other women and me, because they these are stories that deserve to be told. And that book is called Ladies of the Press. Mm-hmm. Um you know, Julia told her that her life had been threatened multiple times, not just once. And it really made me think: What am I willing to risk my life for? What am mm-hmm. I willing to literally possibly die for? Yeah. And I think that's yeah. a question we should all ask ourselves because you're you're going to get real clear, real fast on what your priorities are.
0: <laughs> <Like>, hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm also just going to. Quick tangent of a shout out for another courageous woman who speaks about this, uh, Martha Beck in her book, Way of Integrity. Yes. Oh my God, a life-changing book for myself, for so many of my clients and friends. And it just, because she was faced with that same thing, this this integrity, this truth and Mm. justice at the potential uh, expense of harm. Um, And so... It's just so courageous to even consider that acting in that way.
1: Yes. And that book was just recommended to me by my very dear friend, Lisa Genova, who's also an author and a Harvard-trained neuroscientist. And she wrote the incredible book, Still Alice, and six other books, um, five works of fiction and one nonfiction about, um, which was her most recent book, The Science of Memory and the Art of Forgetting. And she just texted me and said, oh my God, you have to read this book. So Martha's Beck, The Way of Integrity is next up on the TBR for me.
0: (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. You're going to love it. Okay. We have, um, do you still have a little more time because we got more to talk about and, um, we could talk so much more about Broadway butterfly and, um, everyone just, it's so, so good and so I'm so excited for your launch. We'll loop back in a moment, but we have to Thank end you. with this very, very important topic. Here mm. we are called, on the, you're on this podcast called Parent Footprint, and <laughs> Parent Footprint is more than it seems in the name. Mm. What we really focus on is individual adults, many who are in a role of parent not just to children but to nieces to students to their athletes to their animals it's about making the world a more loving and compassionate place by being self-evolved and aware human adults like the focus is on the adults Mm. and so we have many listeners and have had many guests who have chosen to be either um non-parents to humans or very real parents to their animals uh such as you and i'd like us to talk about that choice what that choice means and some of the realities of that choice in our modern um in our modern world with expectations and perspectives
1: yes thank you for bringing that up so i my husband and I have chosen to be child free. And I knew from very early on I did not want to parent. So I have very clear memories of being a little girl. And oftentimes little girls in the in this culture will carry around little baby dolls and put them in little strollers and push them and you know, change them and dress them and 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 mother them. And I remember being in groups of other little kids, and the little girls would be carrying around their dolls, and I was carrying around this briefcase and staring at them. And they would, you know, tell me about their babies, their baby dolls. And I and I remember saying, "I don't, I don't want to, ha- I don't want to have a baby. I want to go to work." And I was a little, you know, I think I was no more than five. Wow. I was very clear. I just mm-hmm. always knew this was not for me. And I think that I recognize that parenting is a job, and I'm the oldest of four children, and so I think I got a taste of parenting early on. And then I worked as a nanny one summer in college. And I think that everyone should be required to work as a nanny because it gives you (laughs) – A very clear idea of what parenting is. And then you can see before you have your own is this for me or is this not for me? And I was, it was further cemented in my mind, this is not for me. So again, recognizing it's a job, I looked at this job and said, there is other work that is more interesting and more um, calling me more than this work. Mm -hmm. And the work that I have chosen to do is writing and teaching yoga where I do feel that I nurture and mother my students and my students have, you know, told me that they feel very nurtured and supported by me. And another one of your past guests, Caroline Levitt, Mm -hmm. um, post you know she's very open about she is a, a she has chosen to parent but she's very open about you know her her she grew up in a tough family and you know she posts every mother's day on social media that hey this is a tough day for a lot of people whose mothers were not what they wanted or who either choose not to be mothers or who can't be mothers or who are estranged from their mothers or their daughters and she and she always emails me and she says Sarah I love you and I feel very mothered by you mm. and I hope that you feel mothered by me and I do and so to your point I think yeah. that there are a lot of ways to mother and parent and to nurture and be nurtured that are outside of the traditional role of 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 having a tiny human mm-hmm. uh, you know birthing or adopting or fostering a tiny human and raising them to adulthood and i have chosen these other ways so i have five godchildren mm-hmm. and uh, one doggy daughter <laughs> and those are the ways that I have chosen to nourish and yes. be nourished.
0: Beautiful. And what would you say to all of us who I would say often unknowingly make comments? or judgments um you tell me that like you like what like in terms of the the i feel my, my sense as from talking to others in your situation as well the otherness that gets sort of um perpetuated by especially our generation i think as we you know, discussed earlier, like not maybe as much as the newer generation, but as more of our generation, there's this expectation. And if you don't meet an expectation, it doesn't always feel good. Mm. And again, and I don't think a lot of people, like some people might be intentional. And I think a lot of people just are missing it. And I think that's why, you know, um, Caroline's um, messages to you are so, so um, intentional. Mm. It's like the opposite of what I'm trying to describe here. <laughs> Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think it's so easy to get swept up into the busyness and into expectations that it be it feels like it's not an if but when. I
0: right. think
1: so often we just think to to ourselves, there's a path. It's like a freeway, <laughs> and you get sucked. You you're on the on ramp, and you just you accelerate, and you get in. You get on the freeway, and you have to accelerate to keep up with other traffic, and it's very easy to or or it's like you know going into a stream and getting carried by a, a, a current and if everybody is swimming downstream and everybody's going the same direction it's very easy to just get swept along with the current and think well I'm going to graduate high school then I'm going to go to college then I'm going to meet someone then I'm going to get married then I'm going to have kids then then we're going to move to the suburbs then then we're going to parent them then they're going to go to high school then they're going to go to college then they're going to have kids and you just you don't realize that those are actually all choices. Right. And a lot – I think most people think, when am I going to have kids? Without realizing it's actually if I'm going to have kids. Mm -hmm. And so even though I knew from the time I was five years old, I wanted to write and I did not want to parent – I still found myself saying things in group conversations like, "Oh yeah, when I have kids and I would feel sick to my stomach when I mm. said it. It felt I actually felt like I wanted to cry or yeah. run away or throw up because it was I knew I didn't want to do this, but everyone else was saying it, so I felt like I had to because it it would be so unfathomable to say Actually, I don't want to do that. And if mm-hmm. conversation, if everyone else is like, "Oh my god, I can't wait to have kids! Oh my god, it's going to be so cute!" And then their little outfits, and then we're going to take them for walks together, and we're going to push them on the swings together, and then they're going to have playdates, and they're going to be best friends, and then we're going to be best friends because and their kids are going to be best friends, and then and then if someone has a boy, and then they get married, you know, and then our kids will get married, and it's you get swept up into these, you know, daydreams and these expectations. And if someone says in that group of of chattering excitement. Actually, I don't want to do what all of you are saying you can't wait to do. Let me assure you, conversation comes to a screeching halt and everyone stares at you like you just said you'd like to eat bugs. <laughs> like, yeah, right. And if everyone else is talking about how great chocolate cake is and you say, chocolate cake makes me freaking sick. I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Everyone – it makes people feel bad about themselves liking chocolate cake or whatever. Absolutely. Right. And I think that that's really interesting because when parents share their joy, the picture of their adorable chubby cheeked baby or baby's first ice cream or baby's first tooth or you know, baby's first crawling step, everyone else celebrates that because almost everyone else has kids and they're either anticipating those moments that they'll have or they're reliving those moments that they did have already. And everyone celebrates that, including the child free But when child-free people share their joy, like, hey, I slept in until noon today and it was delightful. Or, (laughs) you know, hey, I went for a quiet walk with my husband and nobody cried and no one had a temper tantrum and we didn't have to turn back early. Or sometimes my husband and I will go out for dinner on on Mother's Day and nobody pukes or poops or has to go home early because the babysitter has to get to school or has to get the train home or whatever. Um, And it's really lovely, but I don't Share those moments because when a child free person shares their joy, oftentimes it is perceived by the parenting world to be an inherent criticism of their choice to opt in. And I'm not quite sure why that is because, again, when parents share their joy, it is supported by those in the child free community. Um, But I think it's so scary to people to make a different choice because it makes people who maybe haven't thought. About this is an if, not a when. Think, oh right. my god! Or what are you yeah. saying about me and my beautiful little, you know, baby? <laughs> and it's it's just it is a very interesting and very complicated thing. And it another, is another thing that people say is, um, you know, they'll say childless. Yeah, which I
0: realize I said that instead of child free, I was going to correct myself. So say, (laughs) say the difference, please. The
1: difference is, is that childless is one of those old fashioned terms from the patriarchy, like spinster, Uh, childless. Apologies,
0: apologies. (laughs)
1: Dried up, old prune. You uh, have sinned against the patriarchy. Yes, um, yes. Whereas child free is a positive, like fat free, cholesterol free. You know, expectation mm-hmm. free. It's a choice, and it's a celebration, and it's inherently positive. But yes. again, it's so deeply embedded in a, in our in our language and in our vernacular, and those expectations are so deeply embedded that we just say it without thinking. And I said yes. it without thinking for so long, but one of the things that people say to child free people is the, you know, who's going to take care of you? Um, who's going to remember you? What about your legacy? and i I think it's really interesting because I personally would never have children because I'm not here to breed a future caretaker. I would never expect to mm-hmm. another human being to spend their life taking care of me in my old age. That's a big burden to put on somebody. and mm-hmm. it what if your kid wants to be an astronaut or a scuba diver or a navy seal or a CIA agent and they have to be embedded in Russia or you know somewhere in the Middle East and they're not there to push your wheelchair <laughs> or or feed you your lunch. I think what what if I did choose to have children I would have I would have also chosen to consciously manage my life and manage my finances so that I could afford to hire an actual professional caretaker instead of putting that burden and mm-hmm. expectation and responsibility yeah. on my child. So yes. that's the first thing is I don't expect anyone to take care of me. I mm-hmm. want to take care of myself and I want to create a financial plan to, if I do need that care down the road, that I can hire someone who chooses to do that work, Yes. Um, not burdening someone who didn't maybe choose to do that work, but who happens to be my child, so therefore must. The yes. second thing that I want to say is this book, Broadway Butterfly, felt especially meaningful to me because- Julia Hartman and her husband chose not to have children, right. and Dot King chose not to have children, although that choice was actually robbed from her because she was murdered. She mm-hmm. may have chosen to have children down the road. We'll never know because that was one more thing that was she was robbed of. Mm-hmm. Francis and Ella chose mm-hmm. to have children. They did cho- choose to parent John D. Coughlin, inspector, John D. Coughlin, head of the detectives unit, he chose not to have children and he actually chose not to marry. So I have three child-free people Mm -hmm. and two parenting people, uh, characters in my book. And I think, again, the first thing people say is who's going to remember you? You, You're not going to be remembered. And I think the thing that I have to say is number one, there's a lot of different ways to to be remembered. My husband and I do a lot of child work. A child, uh, sorry, do a lot of charity work. Um, one of the organizations we've supo- we support have supported and are heavily involved with is Friends of the Children Boston, which supports the most at risk, vulnerable children in Boston. And actually, that's a nationwide organization that goes into the schools and kindergarten, and identifies the most at risk children, and provides them with full time paid mentorship, K through 12, with the goal oh. of Breaking the cycles of generational poverty, teenage pregnancy, and incarceration with a ninety nine percent success rate.
0: That's incredible. Um,
1: there is a lot of different ways to serve and yes. to create a legacy of service and to create a life of meaning that does not include breeding, <laughs> and I yes. invite people to take a look at that. At that, the second thing is you know, you never know that if in a hundred years. Another child-free person might come along and think your life and your work and your choices are extraordinary and write a book about you. Yes. So I have chosen to honor all of my characters, the parents and the non-parents, and honor them and their legacy in the pages of my book and with anyone who reads them. So now you, Dr. Dan, you know about these extraordinary people, and Mm -hmm. it feels – Really special and really meaningful because again, the first thing one of the first things people say to, to child free people is, Well, who's gonna remember you? Well, here All I right. am. I'm remembering you. And yes. my very dear friend Dorothy Stover, you know, said to me she's part indigenous. And she said, you know, in my tradition, you don't die when your physical body dies. You die when someone stops speaking your name. So in in Indigenous mm. culture, you speak the names of the dead to keep them alive. And so every day. I speak the names of these people in my book and I keep their names alive. And yes. Yes. I, that feels very meaningful.
0: Thank you for sharing your perspective. Um, and um, I will make sure that I speak it um, <laughs> accurately. And uh, this is really important. This is really important. I And I, I want to say... The other thing from someone, I'll speak for myself as someone with children. When I'm mm. talk, when I hear about or talking with someone who is child free, and their aspects of their life and the freedom, there's jealousy, right? Like this whole Ooh. parenting thing. Like let's just be honest. Like Ooh. parenting, right? Parenting is, um, it's not easy. And I think if we're being authentic, we're talking about, you know, there's highs and there's lows and, Mm. um, and it can be exhausting Mm. and there are different various degrees of self-sacrifice. We didn't talk about self-care earlier, but another Mm -hmm. theme of your, um, of your, um, your own book.
1: And so Mm. I just want to
0: throw that out there. So everyone for parents to be aware that sometimes maybe our responses are in a coping mechanism to feel okay about our choice Mm. as parents in relation to a child-free person's choice and the different life experiences that they might have because they're not um, parenting in the same way. So I'm saying that really Mm. generally, but I just want to own that. Like at times it's like, Wow. Oh my gosh. Like no screaming, no Mm. waking up in the middle of the night. You know, again, I'm just focusing (laughs) on an aspect of this, but the stuff you said, and you got to sleep in, you had a nice walk. You didn't have to think about this or this. That also is a great choice. Like that is Mm. a great choice. So I, I just want us all to think about what you said about choice and think Mm. about how we respond to people. Again, back to your, um, your Yogi book, Um, thinking about other people's stories and other Mm. people's narratives and how for us not to indulge in them too much, but also not to judge. Like, I think we all just have to really think about what we say and we're allowed to think whatever we think because we're humans, but let's, let's be aware of what we're thinking and let's ask ourselves some questions and let's, let's be aware and more purposeful when we interact with others.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for saying that. And your vulnerability now gives me permission and courage to vulnerably share back, which is there is also jealousy and fear from my perspective looking inward, which is that I am afraid of missing out. I am afraid of having regrets later. And there are days that are lonely and feel a little bit empty. And those days specifically for me and my husband are holidays. So specifically Christmas, because Christmas is such a child centered holiday where you, you know, you wake up at the crack of dawn and you, you know, you run into the living room and you dive down to sit beside the tree and you rip open the presents and you're so excited and you're so happy. And then you have breakfast and you do whatever the rest of your Christmas day tradition is. Christmas is still something that we are trying to figure out how to do without kids. And Easter also because, you know, we don't have Easter eggs to hide for anybody. Um, And so those days are challenging and feel a little hollow and a little empty to us because we haven't figured out, because there is no blueprint, because we don't have anyone Who's ahead of us? Who's saying this is how you do child-free Christmas? This is how you do child-free Easter. Um, mm-hmm. It is so unusual for people of our generation to to choose child-free. And in fact, one of my husband's um, college friends, who's a, a year or two behind him, said, "You know, we've been looking at you, waiting for you to create the blueprint how to do this," because she and mm. her partner are. are Ninety percent committed to the child-free path, and she was like, I, "I don't know how to do this. How do you guys do it?" And it's like, "Oh my god, we got to figure this out for everybody." Mm. Um, but there is, there is fear on my part, you know, because at forty-five, I'm like, I feel good about child-free, but will I feel that good at fifty or fifty-five? But then it's too late for me to start then because I don't want to leave a kid, you know. <laughs> Potentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to be a 75 year old whose kid has graduated from college. Um, you know, and so I have yeah. those fears too. Yeah. This is this is not stone clad. It's malleable and it's scary and it's hard. And, you know, there are days yeah. when when, you know, I I babysit a lot and, you know, when you give them their bath and you put them in their little footy jammies and they smell like Johnson's baby shampoo and you snuggle them up and they're this warm little nugget and you read them a book and then they say more and you read them another book and they say more and you – but you like to read so it's okay. And I think Mm -hmm. this is pretty great too, you know. And so there is – There is that for me and I own that. But I also think that, you know, me being child-free enables me to show up for my parenting friends. So when any friend of mine has a baby, I cook five days of meals complete with side dishes, I box them up like I'm DoorDash and I bring them to the hospital and I say, here's your meals for the next five days. Here's your main courses. Here's your, here's your side dishes. Here's your salads and your salad dressings. I box them up individually and I bring lavender lotion and I massage their feet and their swollen legs. And I say I want to take care of you, and I'm able to show up for them in that way because I don't have children myself. If I yeah. was stressed and tired yeah. and exhausted, and only got two hours of sleep, and had someone with you know a fever or or you know home from daycare or, wh- or whatever the case is, I wouldn't have the bandwidth to show up for those who who are parenting in that way. Or you know, a friend will text and say, "Oh my god, my kid's sick, and they won't take them at daycare, and I have a meeting. Can you babysit?" And the answer is, yes, I can. Because I'm not yeah. dealing with that myself. Yeah. And so it, I, being well, child free, actually allows yeah. me to show up the more for those who do have children.
0: Thank you so much for that perspective and, and your vulnerability. And I think this just you know shows all of us. Again, life is, there's so many choices. There's so many paths. And it's always messy. There's no one <laughs> right way. There's no one wrong way. Like, it just is. And... It's, it, it's messy. There's uncertainty. And as you have educated us, we need to try to stay in the moments, in the transitions, in the process, because none of us know where this thing is going. So we might as well focus on what we have right in front of us.
1: Yes, exactly. And let's celebrate each other's choices. Mm-hmm. You know, let's show up for each other. I celebrate those who choose to parent. I'm happy for them that they have chosen that. I send outfits, I have food. I I'm I really want to be there for them in a meaningful way that feels nourishing and good for them and to, you know, and and my friend who's also a psychiatrist Dr. Samya Dave devotes a lot of time and space to parenting and breaking generational trauma and parenting um, patterns and and she says you know it really feels supportive to just get a text that says I'm thinking of you and I don't need a reply but I love you and that's all so I send those messages to her and to other parents you know it's like I want to celebrate and support you and your choices whatever they are and I would love if the child free community could start to receive some of that back if as you said, we could own our jealousies and our fears and, 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 and just say, celebrate the choice to not parent as well.
0: Well, it's actually time for the parent footprint moment question. I want to thank all of our listeners for listening. This has been such a rich, engaging conversation. This is a double show today. We got a, We got a double show, and it could go on. <laughs> it, could, it could go on forever. So this is
1: a masterclass.
0: This is a masterclass in lots of different things. Okay, <laughs> so here's the question, Sarah. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual. As a parent, godparent, pet parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your children's life, and or those you love?
1: That is such a big, beautiful question, and I think there are many moments you know i think it was when i was 5 years old and and carrying my 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 too big for my tiny body briefcase around saying i don't i don't want a baby i want to go to work and i think about how if things had been different back in the you know late 70s and early 80s what if i had had an adult in my life that said that's great sarah you should do that instead yeah. of kind of st- you know, saying, oh, you know, she's eccentric. She'll probably change her mind, um, you know, or she's she's being very silly, you know. Um, I think about what that would have been like and maybe I would have been able to stand stronger in my choices earlier mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. life. Um, I think about the moment yeah. that my friend Rebecca's parents adopted Peluda's sisters, um, from you know, living in Texas, they found her mom and her her litter mates under a shed, and, and she sent me a picture. She went home for Christmas, and she sent she sent me a picture. She said, "This is my mom's new puppy," and I said, "Oh my god i I want to adopt. Is there any left in the litter? I want to adopt uh, adopt." adopt one of these little fur balls. And she said, there's one left, but she hasn't been adopted because she's the ugly one. And I mm. knew immediately I had to have the ugly one that I would parent the ugly one, <laughs> who, of course is completely adorable and per- utter perfection. And how I love this little 16 ball- pound ball of fur with all of my heart and ev- all of my soul and every cell in my body, I would die for her. Mm. Um and I think about how I love her completely and endlessly. And I think yeah. about the moment that I gathered the courage to write in my journal, I want to write a book because it felt too scary and too big to say out loud and how I held that secret inside for years because I thought, who the hell am I to write a book? You know, I'm, I'm not I'm not worthy. I can't do that. I don't have the tools, the skills, the talent, the training, the degree, the pedigree the family money <laughs> to, to do that. I'll never be able to do that. But I, I wrote it down and I held it, it, it as a tiny mm. bud, a nascent bud in my heart. There's all these little moments that along the path that if I string them together, creates a narrative arc of my own journey. And mm. you know I just want to invite others to take the time to think about what they want to be remembered for and what they want their footprint on this life and on this earth to be comprised of and to cultivate that footprint
0: consciously. ah, oh, oh, a beautiful conclusion to our conversation that I don't want to end. And I think we're going to have to have another, um, I've really enjoyed, um, speaking with you today, sharing this time with you. And thank you for, um, sharing yourself with us, um, not only through your books, but through your, your honest, vulnerable, um, courageous self.
1: Oh my gosh. Dr. Jan, I love you. I'm I'm (laughs) tearing up over here. You're just, you're so wonderful. And you're so kind and so wise. And this has been a heart filling, vulnerable making, courage, cultivating conversation. And that is because of you and your training and your own self-work to be able to be present here and to hold that space for me so that I can can start to peel the layers of the onion and 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 let those thoughts out. Mm-hmm. So Thank you. And I'm so grateful that I'm actually tearing up over here. <laughs> so thank
0: you. Oh, it's mutual. Thank you. Please tell everyone where uh, this is just out. Broadway Butterfly, just out. Please tell everyone where they can find it, what you're up to. And of course, <laughs> I still also highly recommend your memoir, Where in the Om Am I, as well. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much. So yeah, Broadway Butterfly, just out, um, thrilled that Entertainment Weekly picked it as a most anticipated book, AARP, um, picked it as a most anticipated book. I just was so grateful to get a review from the Associated Press yesterday. And it is available anywhere that books are sold. You can get signed copies from Murder by the Book, which is an incredible woman owned independent bookstore in Texas. You can get it from your local independent bookstore, wherever you are based, from Amazon. If you like to have that instant delivery, wherever you like to buy your books, it is available. Where in the OMMI is available mostly at this point because it is 10 years old from Amazon. And um, you can find me. I'm very active on social media. I love to connect and talk and nerd out about all these. Things so i am on instagram twitter tiktok threads facebook i do it all and um i put a lot of the behind the scenes of my research into dot king's murder uh, into my into broadway butterfly on my website which is very mysterious it is saradavello.com and that's all <laughs> on backslash behind the scenes so you can see the places I went, the bowels of the New York Public Library, the this, you know, different places where the characters lived, where Dot King died. It's all on my website. So if you love to nerd out about this stuff, my true crime fans, check it out.
0: Awesome. So awesome. So excited for you. Wish you the best of luck and um, looking forward to what's to come.
1: Thank you so very much. I have loved this time together.
0: Everyone, you know what to do. Send this to everyone you think will benefit and learn from it. Thank you for being a part of our community. Thank you for your five-star reviews. They mean a lot to us. You know what I'm also going to ask you to do. Be your best to be that person that you want your child or your godchild to become. (laughs) And ask yourself the guiding question I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummer Man, composed and performed by ProTunes artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.